Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. Top officials from Japan and China met to discuss security issues, with both sides making accusations of spying and military buildups. The top Chinese diplomat met in Russia with the close aid of Putin, with the goal of reaffirming the strength of their ties. Putin held talks with China's top diplomat, agreeing that their partnership is not directed against another country. Putin then gave a State of the Nation speech, blaming the West for the war in Ukraine and suspending the START arms treaty. NHK Japan Top officials from Japan and China say their countries need to work together to tackle some difficult issues. These were the first security talks in four years and came amid growing tensions over Taiwan and accusations of espionage. The senior foreign affairs and defense officials showed signs of disagreement, locking horns on several key issues. Yamada Shigeo broached the topic of spy balloons. The senior deputy minister for foreign affairs says Japan strongly suspects China flew them within its airspace. China shown the spotlight on Japan's recent moves to boost defensive capabilities, which Beijing casts as a military buildup. To be honest, China has serious concerns over Japan's release of its new defense and security documents, its collusion with foreign forces, and the negative moves such as its involvement in the Taiwan issue. Still, the two agree on the need to keep an open dialogue to avoid any unintended escalation and decided to create a new hotline. There is a common understanding between the two countries' leaders of the need to build constructive and stable Japan-China relations. China's vice minister also met with Japanese foreign minister Hayashi Yoshimasa during his visit to Tokyo. Hayashi likewise emphasized the need to allow both sides to air concerns and work through disputes. The trip was also an opportunity for China to remind Tokyo of its importance as Japan moves to strengthen ties with Beijing's rival, the United States. China's top diplomat has met in Moscow with one of Putin's closest aides. The aim is to reaffirm that ties between their nations are strong. Wang Yi met Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev on Tuesday. Amid a campaign by the West to deter both Russia and China, it is particularly important to further deepen the Russian-Chinese coordination 
and cooperation in the international arena. China is willing to continue to promote mutually beneficial cooperation in various fields, jointly practice genuine multilateralism, and oppose all forms of unilateral hegemony. Wang also said the relationship is able to withstand various tests in the changing international environment. He characterized relations between the two countries as mature and rock-solid. The meeting came as a U.S. newspaper reported that the leaders of China and Russia may soon hold a summit. The Wall Street Journal on Tuesday quoted sources as saying, preparations are being made for a meeting in the coming months in Russia between President Xi Jinping and Putin. The report said Beijing wants to support negotiations aimed at ending the war in Ukraine. Media outlets say that while in Moscow, Wang may also meet with Putin to discuss Xi's planned visit. The Japanese Defense Ministry has confirmed North Korea launched two ballistic missiles. They were fired from the country's west coast and fell outside Japan's exclusive economic zone. The Japanese Coast Guard says there are no reports of any damage to ships in the region. Monday's missile launch comes after North Korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile on Saturday. That projectile landed inside Japan's exclusive economic zone. It was followed by a joint exercise involving Japan's Air Self-Defense Force and the U.S. military. Diplomatic movements are heating up ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin held talks Wednesday with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi. Russian-Chinese relations are developing just as we planned in previous years. Everything is moving forward, developing, and we are reaching new milestones. Putin said he expects trade between their countries to reach $200 billion by 2024. He also said he's waiting for Chinese President Xi Jinping to visit Moscow for a summit as planned. Wang replied relations between their nations are mature, resilient and stable. We would like to emphasize once again that the comprehensive strategic partnership between Russia and China has never been directed against a third party and is certainly not subjected to interference and provocation by any third party. Russian President Vladimir Putin has justified the invasion as a war of self-defense. Now, nearly one year later, he has once again put the blame on the West and says the U.S. and its allies represent an existential threat. Western countries are trying to turn the conflict in Ukraine into a global confrontation, but they should understand that it is impossible to defeat Russia on the battlefield. Putin used his annual State of the Nation address to assure lawmakers and military commanders that the fight will continue. He said relations with the West have deteriorated to the point that previous agreements are no longer binding. That includes the nuclear treaty known as the New START, which caps the number of strategic warheads the U.S. and Russia can deploy. They want to inflict a strategic defeat on us and try to get to our nuclear facilities. 
that has forced me to announce today that Russia is suspending its participation in the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty. Putin said attempts by Ukraine's allies to change the course of war through sanctions have failed. He said the Russian economy has turned out to be much more resilient than they thought. And he plans to hold upcoming regional elections and the presidential election in accordance with all democratic and constitutional procedures. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. Their podcasts are also available at most podcast sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to France 24. An analysis and discussion about the dueling speeches delivered by Joe Biden and Putin on the anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine. Then, from a weekly program called Perspective, an interview with political scientist Edward Morena on how the ultra-wealthy have reshaped the global discussion on climate change. France 24. Joining me now is Oliver Ferry from our international desk. Hello to you, Oliver. Uh, First of all, let's look at Biden's visit and his speech. What was the significance of this trip? Well, Joe Biden used the visit to Warsaw, which was his second in the space of a year to rally NATO countries together behind Ukraine. It was very much a theatrical affair, as is often the case with these overseas speeches by U.S. presidents in front of 30,000 people at Warsaw's Royal Castle. And the timing, 11 months after his previous visit, was significant. It's to mark the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the tone was quite bullish. There was a lot of goading of Russian President Vladimir Putin, whom Biden ridiculed for his failure to capture Ukraine as easily as expected. He said, instead of an easy victory, he, uh, he predicted Putin left burned out tanks and Russian forces in disarray. Biden also said that Russia would never prevail in the Ukraine war. One of Biden's main themes was the free world against dictatorship, saying perhaps somewhat prematurely, that autocrats were being have grown weaker. Now, of course, many would point out that that's not really the case in certain parts of the world, and even the United States is quite comfortable with certain autocrats, such as Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi or Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, though that admittedly is something that the United States has, has been doing for, for a long time, uh, selective relationships with autocratic regimes. But all in all, Biden's speech was a confident one, and uh, it will give renewed morale to you Ukraine uh, and its people, just as his uh, his surprise visit to Kiev on Monday did. Yeah, in Vladimir Putin's speech, uh, he didn't mention Joe Biden, but he did criticize the U.S. and the West a lot. Yeah, Putin's uh, speech was rambling, but in its own way, it had its coherence. Uh, it was a speech that was very much uh, for a domestic audience, pitting Russia against a decadent, evil West. He evoked the Great Patriotic War, which is how the Second World War is known in Russia, and it's very much, it's viewed with quite a different perspective as, as a, the Second World War is viewed in the West. Russia had by far the greatest civilian and military casualties during that war. He drew parallels between the Great Patriotic War and what Russia is doing in Ukraine now, even though it cannot bring itself to 
call it to call what it's doing a war. It's a special military operation. There were also frequent mentions of Nazis, a popular line of Russian disinformation over the past nine months, uh, one that has been picked up in quarter, some quarters in the West, in which the Ukrainian government is supposedly a Nazi puppet regime. That wasn't the only piece of dis disinformation in the speech. Putin rejected the false, or repeated the false charge that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had uh, called for uh, a nuclear strike on Russia and also that the US is developing uh, biological weapons labs in Ukraine. There was also a litany of charges against the West where, quote, paedophilia is the norm and where the American churches are putting up a gender-neutral god. These are familiar from previous speeches by Putin in the last year, and also from commentators on Russian state TV. And Putin said to the West, that said that the West wanted to be rid of Russia once and for all, and the intention is clear to pit Russia against its enemies in the West, and particularly play it to a conservative, older Russian audience. But there was also a substantial consequence in Putin's speech. He announced that Russia would be withdrawing from its last existing treaty with the United States, the New START Treaty which on nuclear arms reduction, which was signed by Presidents Barack Obama and Dmitry Medvedev in 2010. Russia's lower house, the Duma, has already voted this morning to withdraw from it, with the Federal Council set to do likewise later today. All right, Oliver. Thank you very much, Oliver Ferry, from our international desk. Bill Gates insisting his use of a private jet isn't part of the problem when it comes to climate change. One of the world's largest oil producers hosting the next round of UN climate talks, or elites at the World Economic Forum in Davos, from King Charles to Jane Goodall and Al Gore, lecturing the public on the importance of tackling global warming. Just a few examples, if you like, about how the ultra-wealthy have reshaped the global discussion on climate change, pushing maybe, though, for uh, solutions that serve their interests. Well, Political scientist Edouard Morena's new book explores the theme. It's called Fan du Monde et Petit Four. Here it is, and he joins us for today's edition of Perspective. Thanks very much for coming in and talking to us today. I mean, it does seem a bit of a juxtaposition, doesn't it, sometimes, when you see some of these rich and powerful people coming on and banging on about climate change. And you call it, if you like, green capitalism, don't you? What do you mean by that? Green capitalism is, is a particular idea of what needs to be done to tackle the climate crisis, um, an idea that focuses a lot on carbon markets that focuses, or carbon pricing, uh, but also that tends to focus a lot on kind of techno fixes and the idea that um, through innovation and new technologies, we can solve the crisis. And finally, it's also an, an approach that, that centers on certain specific policies and that kind of attributes a particular role to the state as well uh, in, 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 in driving the low carbon transition. I mean, on, a, on an individual level, I mentioned in the link there with mm -hmm. private jets, which is the obvious thing which perhaps comes pe to people's mind. Um, you think of uh, the elite CO2 emissions in private jets, but the, you say, don't you, that 70% of the ultra-wealthy's emissions can actually be linked not necessarily to that, but more to their investments. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and I'm, I'm drawing on the work of a French economist called Lucas Chancel, who, who, who's really focused on that and who highlights that, you know, there's, there's a tendency to focus on uh, the ultra-rich and, and their consumption. So we focus on their super yachts, we focus on their, their jets, uh, but we tend to also leave aside their investments, so where their wealth is invested. And what Lucas Chancel highlights is that if you look at that, you actually realise that the vast majority of their emissions are actually connected to their investments. Um, and so I guess that's that was an important starting point for me when analysing the super rich, because from the moment that their investments are um, responsible for uh, rising emissions, then that also generates a, an, an extra impetus, let's say, on their behalf to actually engage in the debate. 
Um, and that's that's what I tried to do in the book. Does, is, is this a bit unfair, though? I mean, presumably uh, these people have, uh, are where they are because of what they've done in their lives. And at the same time, surely they could be trying to do their best to, to combat climate change. It's not just, um, you know, it's part of their programme as well. Yes, I guess you could argue that. But if you look at the, you look at if you look at the history, and if you look at the the actors I study, quite a few of them are um, built their wealth through the the tech boom, for instance. And if you look at the tech boom, if you look at the rise of Silicon Valley, you actually you actually also realize that it was thanks to federal support that the Silicon Valley was able to rise. So so they they tend to enter to to, to promote this idea that they were self made men, that they came from nothing, and it's this whole kind of narrative um, around them that kind of promotes this idea that you know they they were. Um, yeah, they, they built their own wealth through their hard work. But if you look at the reality, you realize that, in fact, it was actually thanks to um, government uh, spending and involvement in the economy that they were able to do that. Uh, um, and so, so, yeah, so I guess the idea is to also kind of break the myth of the entrepreneur that's also very closely associated with um, these uh, rich individuals' involvement in the uh, in the international climate debate. I mean, going back to green capitalism that we were talking about just a moment, I mean, there are specific ways, aren't there, that you, you can argue that a lot of those wealthy people do actually benefit themselves from it. Absolutely. They benefit from it. Um, and at the same time, I think it's also um, important to acknowledge that I think they're actually aware of the, of, the, of the risks associated with the climate crisis, the risks to the world. And, and again, I think the idea is not to say that they're just greenwashing or they're not actually concerned about the climate crisis. They are in a way concerned about the climate crisis, but they're also extremely concerned about the consequences of the climate crisis on their wealth and on their power. Mm. Uh, because the climate crisis you know, will potentially lead to a devaluation of their assets, will also generate political instability, uh, geopolitical instability. And so all these factors represent risks to them. And so their priority is to try and address those risks and to try and push for policies that address those risks while at the same time preserving their wealth and their power. So when you see these, um, you know, huge conferences that happen around the world, I'm thinking of Davos, I'm thinking of COP conferences, does it depress you? Do you kind of feel that, that you know, w w what these people are saying is all part of this and, and actually they are either concerned for their own well-being or just set to benefit from it anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the trend when we look at COPs over the past few years has been to turn COPs into these kind of spectacles, basically, where we've kind of showcased the uh, efforts of the super wealthy. You know, if you look at COP26 in Glasgow, when you see Jeff Bezos speaking there, you know, this kind of idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, there, there's a, a, yeah, it's a spectacle, essentially. It's about kind of putting themselves forward and reinforcing this idea that the super rich will save the world, essentially. Um, so that, in a way, is depressing. But at the same time, if you look at what happened at the, pre, at the, the last COP in, in Sharm el-Sheikh, I think it, I was actually quite hopeful because of the focus on loss and damage, because of the fact that, I guess, the, the, what COPs were initially for, which was about kind of getting countries together to try and negotiate, to try and address these complicated issues. And loss and damage is really a complicated issue. Issue, the fact that loss and damage was put on the agenda, the fact that we have, you know, it kind of reignited this idea that actually COPs are not just about the spectacle, they're also about hard negotiations between countries, and in particular about providing the global south a, a voice as well in the climate debate, and I think that's really important. And at least, uh, of course, you do hear from scientists as well at these events. You do, absolutely. And I think they, they, they play that role as well. But I guess what's important is to, to I think that there are two things. There's one thing which is to 
to, to, to highlight and to focus on the climate science, to, to really insist on the urgency of the situation. Uh, but there's another, which is to decide on what type of transition we want. Um, and I think it's important to separate the two, in a way. I think that we need to, the, on the one hand, acknowledge the science, and the science is clear that there is an urgent situation, that, it, that climate change is man-made. But I think it's also important to highlight that there are multiple types of transitions that are possible. And I think that's, that's I guess, one of my main critiques towards the super-rich is that they've, they've, ten they've tended to bundle the two together, to bundle the science with their particular vision of the low-carbon transition and to present that low-carbon transition as almost kind of a, a natural uh, translation of the science into policy. So and I think that's problematic. It, in other words, into, into something to suit their own needs. Absolutely. But they, they kind of naturalise uh, uh, the policies that they push by, by presenting them as kind of a linear uh, uh, translation of the, of the climate science, when in fact, low carbon transition is a fundamentally political issue. And it's about deciding what type of transition we want and in the interests of whom. And I think that's really fundamental. Great to talk to you on the programme today. Thanks very much for Thank coming you. in and uh, talking to us. Edouard Morena's uh, new book, here it is. It's called Fin du monde et petit four. At the moment, only in French, but he was telling me a minute ago he's hoping to do it in English <laughs> at some point anyway. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like a repeat supporter in Covalo, California. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. Brazilian President Lula da Silva visited and offered aid to areas hit by intense rains causing floods and landslides. It rained 24 inches in under eight hours. Mexican President Obrador signed a decree declaring that lithium is the property of the nation and its exploitation controlled by the government. In Peru, clashes between government forces and citizens demanding the resignation of the appointed president, the closure of Congress, and new elections. Lebanon condemned the latest Israeli bombings in Syria, which damaged residences and killed civilians in Damascus. Radio Havana, Cuba. Brazilian President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva traveled this Monday to São Sebastião in the state of São Paulo to attend to the emergency caused by heavy rains that had triggered floods and landslides with a preliminary count of 36 people dead. Brazilian authorities continue the search for at least 40 people after the heavy rainstorm that hit the coast of the state over the weekend. Lula interrupted his rest during the carnival holiday to travel to the affected region on the coast of Sao Paulo and meet with local authorities. Lula flew over the region from Sao Sebastião, the municipality hardest hit by rains that exceeded 600 millimeters in under eight hours.
Rescue teams saw 228 people abandon their homes and 338 rendered homeless. In a message broadcast last night on Twitter, Lula said that all levels of government, with the solidarity of society, will unite to assist the injured, search for the missing, restore roads, power and telecommunications connections in the region. Lulu said how much he regretted the deaths caused by the rains and expressed his solidarity with the families. President Andres Manuel López Obrador has signed a decree declaring that lithium is the property of the nation and its exploitation will be the exclusive power of the Mexican government. The decree established is that 2,334,850 hectares will be considered as lithium reserves in the state of Sonora, located in northern Mexico. The Ministry of Energy has been instructed to carry out follow-up work for the extraction of this mineral, which is essential for electric cars as the basis for the production of batteries. The Mexican president indicated that, quote, what we are doing now is maintaining the proportions. In future, we will nationalize lithium so that it cannot be exploited by foreigners, neither Russia nor China nor the United States. The oil and lithium belongs to the nation. They belong to the people of Mexico, to you, to all those who live in this region of Sonora, to all Mexicans. As Lopez Obrador signed the decree, he reiterated that lithium will be a strategic mineral for the future of technology in the world, and its exploitation will be the exclusive power of the state. This weekend, the Peruvian capital, Lima, was the scene of new mobilizations against the government of President-designate Dina Boluarte, while social organizations denounced attacks with tear gas bombs against demonstrators to prevent them from expressing themselves in areas that have hosted the protests that began on December the 7th. Groups of citizens demanding the resignation of Boluarte, the closure of Congress, the advancement of elections and the call for con a constituent assembly mobilized from different parts of the city to concentrate in Kennedy Park, Miraflores district. There they encountered strong police presence. Had the groups tried to get to the site from Dos de Mayo Square but were tear gassed by national police officers and forced to disperse. Demonstrators interviewed by Teliso undermined the peaceful nature of the protests and the determination to continue with them until the resignation of the Boluarte government and that the president answers to justice for the victims caused by the repression. Lebanon has strongly condemned the latest Israeli airstrikes on the Syrian capital Damascus that heavily damaged residential buildings and caused civilian casualties, declaring that the aggression confirms the regime's indifference to human suffering. The Lebanese foreign ministry, in a statement issued in Beirut, denounced, quote, the attack on the sovereignty of Syria, which is still reeling from the repercussions of the devastating earthquake that struck it on February the 6th and killed thousands. The ministry said that the airstrikes were, quote, violations of the most basic rules of international law. It comes to reaffirm Israel's indifference to human suffering resulting from its attacks on the peoples of the region under all circumstances, especially in times of tragedies doubling its moral condemnation. The Syrian army confirmed in a statement that at least five people, including a soldier, were killed and 15 others wounded in the Israeli airstrike early on Sunday. The Israeli attack was launched from the occupied Golan Heights and targeted several military sites in Damascus, including the southwestern residential neighborhood of Kafar Susha.
It added that many of the wounded are in critical condition and many homes in Damascus and surrounding areas were damaged. Syria has repeatedly complained to the United Nations over Israeli assaults, urging the Security Council to take action against Tel Aviv's crimes. The calls have, however, fallen on deaf ears. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast up there, however, or anywhere else. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, You can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show that's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.